Welcome to the Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. Before we moved into the warehouse and expanded to multiple campus locations, Rolling Hills met in a movie theater. And now we're visiting the movies once again in our series, At The Movies. Whether it be a hero's journey, a villain's downfall, or a fairy tale ending, everyone loves a movie with a good story. But every good story borrows from God's story. In this series, we're looking at five different movies to see how we can find faith stories in film. Now let's tune in. Now maybe you're like me, and you have a movie that no matter what time of day, no matter how tired you are, no matter how busy you are, and of course, no matter how many times you have seen it, you stop to watch that movie. Remember the Titans is that for me. Everything pauses in the presence of Coach Boone. Everything just stops for a minute. It doesn't matter if I'm running late for work. I'm thinking, i got to watch just a minute to kind of get my Remember the Titans feel. In fact, on more than one occasion, I have found myself channeling some of the quotations from Remember the Titans. Maybe you've been in a meeting before, and the meeting was just kind of not going very well. And uh, Ken, maybe we'll just call him Ken as your regional manager, and he's up there leading in the, in the meeting, and you're thinking to yourself, uh, the vibe in the room is just not really that good right now, and people just aren't really seem to be having that good of a time, and I'm really trying to bite my tongue so that I don't say aloud in front of everybody, Ken, I think it's really important that you remember attitude reflects leadership. And you think to yourself, I probably shouldn't say that. Uh, so, uh, but then there's also that, that moment uh, where maybe you've had people who are pushing back on you, and they're just giving you ideas, and you really don't want any more ideas. Kids do this all the time. They think they get a vote in everything. You know, you decide what restaurant you're going to go to. They want a different restaurant. We want to go there. They want to go there. Keep in mind, they get chicken tenders at every restaurant, so it doesn't really matter where we go, but the words of Coach Boone are ringing in your head. This is no democracy. It is a dictatorship, and I am the law. And at those moments when you just want people to understand, I, I wish you just realized this is a dictatorship, and uh, I am the law. I get what I want in that moment. Of course, I'm not talking about church, but you get the, 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 the general idea. Remember the Titans is an incredible movie, and it's an incredible movie because of some of the themes that we see in it, and I think that we really love this story, or I know that I love this story, because it's rooted in truth. It is, in fact, a true story, and I think we connect with it on such a deep level because of the nature of it being based on a true story. Now, if you're not familiar with this storyline at all, I don't know what rock you have been living under, so please make that right this afternoon and go home and watch this movie. But the basic premise, I remember the Titans, if you don't know the stories, back in 1971, a decision was made by the Alexandria, Virginia School Board that high schools would no longer be segregated, which was amazing, and T.C. Williams High School brings together white students and black students and their football teams and their coaches who start this journey of learning how to be a team in spite of their differences and in their history. And one of the central messages of this story is that the team, as you saw here in this clip, the team decides that we are not going to let anything come between us, even though it would be easy to. We're not going to let our differences come between us, though it would be at that time, even more normal. This story certainly was powerful in 1971, and it means so much to us today. And we could stand up here for hours and unpack the truth of this story. There's a hundred takeaway points that I could leave you with today, but in the essence of time, I can't unpack them all. But in this film, something that continually sticks out to me, and it's why we enjoy it, and in fact, it's why we see these really amazing God stories in some of these stories that we love. What I love about this story, it sticks out so pronounced is that this team decided to foster fellowship and they decided to foster community and they decided to foster a sense of not letting anything come between them when there were many reasons to let things come between them. 
It was a challenge, but it was a challenge that was worth it. Now, in life, if you had those challenges before that, you realize it's difficult work. It's hard to accomplish what you want to accomplish, but it's work that is worth it. Some things in life are very challenging, but they're worth the work that you put into them. And then there's some things that are very, very challenging, and they're not worth the work that you put into them. For example, if you've ever bought something that you couldn't afford, that is a lot of work, but it's not worth it in the long run. If you've had an advanced degree for no reason, I'm all about advanced degrees, but if you just kind of want to stay in school forever just to kind of see how many letters you can get after your name, I mean, that's great for you, but I've always kind of chosen to say, what's the reason for that? What's the purpose for that? I mean, cooking a chicken, why would you ever cook a chicken? Costco does it for you. I mean... (laughs) Sam's Club does it for you. Walmart does it for you. Kroger does it for you. It's like $6. I'm like, that's well worth the the time and the effort. It's uh, cooking a chicken. It's a challenge. It's just not worth it. Seeking a promotion at a place that you work where you don't really like your job. I've never understood that. People all the time, they want promotions at places that they hate working. And I'm thinking to myself, maybe you should put that energy towards something that's worth it, which is maybe finding a new place to work. But then there are challenges that are worth it. And they're difficult. But they're worth it. Every time you exercise, no one gets up in the morning and thinks to themselves, I want to exercise. But when you're finished, you realize that was worth it and that was valuable. Spiritual disciplines, waking up in the morning to spend time in prayer, waking up to spend time reading God's word, reflecting upon God's word. It's a challenge, but it's worth it. For those of us that have young kids at home or teenagers at home, there might be nothing that seems more difficult right now than figuring out how to have meals together as a family. But it's worth it. It's valuable. It's finding that time and prioritizing those meals together, investing in things that truly matter. And as we set our sights this morning on this concept of fellowship and this idea of community and being there for one another, in full disclosure this morning, I will tell you fellowship is not easy, but fellowship is worth it. Connections with people are not easy but they are worth it. And my hope and my prayer is that we would all walk away today with a renewed sense of purpose and the value of community and togetherness, maybe more than we even currently do in this moment, and that God would give us a glimpse of what it means to be together, even if we have differences. And that God would give us a glimpse to be together, even if we have a different point of view or whatever the case might be, and that he would be the one that would get all the credit for what happens in this place and what happens in our lives. Because when we live with true biblical fellowship, as you'll see here in just a moment, it's not not only valuable for us, but it's valuable for the world out there. And it is, in fact, the truest testament to the world that Jesus has changed our lives and our hearts based on the love and the connection and the fellowship and the community that we have with one another. So know that I'm honored that you're here with us today. I'm grateful for your presence in this place, and I want us to pray together and ask God to do what only he can do as we open up his word today and ask him to speak to us through it. So Lord, thank you for this day. I'm grateful for, again, each and every person who's here. We thank you for the stories that are present in this room. I thank you for a powerful morning of worship, and I pray, God, that now you would do what only you can do in our midst as we seek to be available for you. And it's in the powerful name of Jesus Christ that we pray and ask all these things. Amen and amen. Now, in case you were ever wondering, in this series that we've been in called At The Movies, we took a little bit of a break from At The Movies last week because of our grand opening. But in this series, I've said for the past couple of weeks, if you've ever wondered Jesus' preferred method of teaching, it was to tell stories. Jesus told parables, and parables were simply stories that had a deeper spiritual 
meaning. And in my time of prayer and preparation for today, I kept coming back to Luke chapter 10. And Luke chapter 10 was very much on my mind in my preparation. And Luke chapter 10 has the parable of the Good Samaritan. And so that's where we'll be headed this morning. If you want to go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 10, you'll see these words here on the screen in just a second. But even if you've never heard the story before, when you hear the word Good Samaritan, you probably have an idea of what we're talking about. You hear that phrase, even if you've never read the Bible, Good Samaritan is a phrase that's in our everyday language. And you think to yourself, being a Good Samaritan is stopping and helping someone on the side of the road. Being a good Samaritan is letting the person who only has five things in their shopping cart and you have a whole cart full of them, letting them go in front of you. It's it's this thing of putting someone else first, being a good Samaritan. But embedded in this story is so much more than just, I need to be nice to people. And embedded in this story of the good Samaritan is so much more than I just need to be kind to others. So let's take a look at this together in Luke chapter 10, picking up in verse 25 all the way down through verse 37. So on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? And he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So in this parable, it starts with a a teacher of the law, which is also known as a religious expert. So this is the religious expert, and he rises to test Jesus, and the question that he puts in front of Jesus is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I think that he knows the answer to this question because he's been around Jesus already, but he's trying to test him, and he's trying to, see, he's trying to back Jesus into a corner to see what Jesus is going to say. He tries to prove a point, but Jesus looks at this religious expert, and he says, well, what does the law say? To which he responds, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and love your neighbor as yourself. That is foundational truth in the Old Testament law. In fact, Jesus said it is the two most important commandments. All of the law hangs on those two commandments, love God and love others. In fact, there are very few weeks that go by here at Rolling Hills Community Church that as your pastor, I don't say the two most important commandments are love God and love people. It is so embedded in what is the truly most important commandments in the law, to love God and to love others. In fact, Jesus says that if you don't get this right, you know, you don't have eternity with Jesus without a commitment to follow Jesus. And Jesus has not really transformed your heart if you're not growing in love for other people. Let me repeat that. You do not have an eternity with Jesus if you don't have a commitment to follow Jesus. And Jesus has not really transformed your heart unless you're growing in love for other people. So instead of leaving good enough alone, (laughs) the teacher of the law tries to justify himself. Now, we don't really know what his agenda was, but he's making life all about himself right now. This is just a side note. When you make life all about you, community is really hard to find. And when you make life all about you and when you want to be right all the time, it's really, really difficult for us to grow in community. That's just a little extra for you. That's not on your points anywhere. But the religious expert, 
The religious expert says, well, then who is my neighbor? With the question, who is my neighbor? And Jesus answers in this parable. And he says, there's a man, a Jewish man, starts in Jerusalem and he makes the journey down to Jericho. And on his journey, he's robbed, he's attacked, and he's left for dead and he's lying in a ditch. And along comes the first person, which is the priest. And so we'll just refer to him as the pastor. So it's me. I'm walking by and I go the other way. And I don't look at the man who's been beaten down and sick and destroyed. And then comes the Levite. Now, the Levites were temple workers, and they were set aside to lead worship in the temple. So that's basically David Curtis, our worship pastor. Okay, and so now David comes by, and he goes to the other side of the road. And then along comes a Samaritan. And Samaritans were half Jewish, half Gentile. And what you need to know about the Samaritans is that they were hated by the Jews. They were despised by the Jews. The Jews didn't like the Samaritans. The Samaritans did not like the Jews. In fact, Jesus' own disciples, do you know that they would bypass Samaria because they didn't want to go through this town? The closest path from Judea to Galilee was right through, you guessed it, Samaria, and they would walk miles around Samaria because they didn't want to go through this town to be with the Samaritans. Jesus, however, didn't do that. In some of his own stories, he shows us that he actually went straight through the streets of Samaria to show everyone that he had come to die for their sins. But the Samaritan stops, and he bandages the wounds of this man. He puts him on his own donkey and takes him to a hotel and pays the bill in advance and even says, if he incurs any room service charges, I'll come back and pay those a little bit later, and I'll leave some money for later. And then Jesus turns to the religious leader and says, who do you think the best neighbor was? Who do you think really fostered the most fellowship? Who do you think really understands what it means to be community? To which he replied, the Samaritan, and Jesus says, go then and do likewise. Now, perhaps you're familiar with this story. And if you're familiar with this story, you have maybe thought up until now that the one person that you should relate to in the story is the Good Samaritan which is true because Jesus says, go and do likewise. There is nothing wrong with that line of reasoning. We can relate to the Good Samaritan and we know that we're supposed to be like him. But lest you forget, you're also the person who is beat down and left for dead and in need of saving. And who did God send to you? God sent someone to you in the person of Jesus that the world was hostile to, that the world did not want to be around. And what did Jesus do? Jesus not only forgave us our sins, met our needs in the moment, but also said, I also am going to forgive you for everything that you will ever do in the days and weeks and months ahead. Kind of like I'm going to leave some money if you incur some other charges. And so perhaps you're seeing for the first time in this story that the parable of the Good Samaritan is a beautiful picture of the gospel. It is Jesus doing for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. This is a gospel-centered story, and so we're not just to relate to the Good Samaritan, but we also relate to the guy who's in the ditch. Isn't it interesting that all these biblical stories, we always identify with the hero, (laughs) but lest we forget, we need to identify with the broken and identify with that's us, that's us, and Jesus made a way for us to be made right, to find that fellowship, to find that community, and then, of course, to live that out with one another. Now, this probably comes as no surprise to you, but in Luke chapter 10, that word for neighbor, when you go look at Jesus' other teachings about love your neighbor as yourself, it's the same word. It's the same word that's used all throughout the New Testament. So being neighborly and creating fellowship It's at the heart of the gospel message. In fact, you see here on your notes, if you want to follow along and maybe reflect on some of these things and write these down and maybe look at them a little bit later on in the week, see, true biblical fellowship is rooted in the gospel. True biblical fellowship is rooted in 
the gospel. Last week, as we celebrated our grand opening Sunday, I used Acts chapter 2 as my primary text. And we looked in Acts chapter 2, there was this incredible outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And on that day, 3,000 people came to faith in Christ. And a little bit later, it says in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. So this was very crucial at the earliest days of the church for the church to be marked by fellowship. And that word fellowship is koinonia. And koinonia means more than just proximity. Sometimes we hear the word fellowship or community and we think, ah, it's just the people I'm close to. It's more than just proximity. See, koinonia is about me having my needs met by you and me meeting your needs. It's by us being there for one another. It's this partnership. It's a contribution. It's not just being a consumer. And it's a really clear picture of what we are to be here and now in 2023. And it's rooted in the power of the gospel. Jesus changing our hearts. And because he has changed our hearts, we go and seek to share the love of Christ with others, to offer forgiveness to other people, and to help other people look, realize what it looks like to turn from their own sin to Jesus, to build one another up and not tear each other down to foster community and fellowship. And there's a really interesting aspect of fellowship that's played out in this parable. It's also played out in Remember the Titans. And fascinatingly enough, it's played out right here in our very midst today, whether or not we have ever stopped to think about it or not. And it's a, a really crucial part of understanding what biblical fellowship is all about. And you see here on your notes, fellowship centers around those I choose to bring into my life and those God chooses to bring into my life. Let me repeat that for you. Fellowship centers around those that I choose to bring into my life and those that God chooses to bring into my life. Go back to verse 27. He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. I love in this parable that Jesus did not say, go and love your neighbors who you like to be around. He didn't say, go and love your neighbors who are just like you. Rather, he said, I want you to go love your neighbors, and Jesus left it at that. Now, and remember the Titans, these two teams didn't choose to come together. Two successful coaches were not consulted in coming together, but they had to learn what it looked like to be together, to push through those challenges, to push through the unknown. And in fact, they had to learn how to manage a team that was honestly rooted in hate and rooted in a fear of what was unknown. And we rarely stop to think about this, but biblical fellowship is not just about who I go and choose to bring into my life, which is of the utmost importance. And in fact, your closest relationships, the people that you engage in interpersonal relationships with are probably people that you like to be around and, and you search them out and you seek them out. There is absolutely nothing wrong with that. But equally, God brings people into your life by his choosing. And you have to learn how to grow in fellowship with them. I'm missing a crucial part of the Good Samaritan parable if I think that my takeaway point is only go find people just like me and to engage in fellowship with people that I seek out. Because see, a Samaritan would never have chosen to help a Jew. And a Jew would actively have avoided a Samaritan. Yet the actions of the Samaritan were who Jesus praised. The priest, the Levite, the Jew, they were all very much more similar. In fact, you could say they were all cut from the same cloth. Not so with the Samaritan, meaning you and I probably have people in our life right now that we need to be growing in fellowship with that God has chosen to bring into my life, and I'm just choosing to ignore it. I love this quote from G.K. Chesterton, and he says, I choose my friends, 
I choose my enemies, but God chooses my next-door neighbors. <laughs> Isn't that rich? I choose my friends. I choose my enemies. But guess who moves in next door? Whoever God in his providence says is there. Without the gospel in the center of your life, you may see the people that God brings into your life, even if they're vastly different than you, you may see them as obstacles opposed as an opportunity to grow in fellowship with one another. Did you know right here at church, uh, we don't have assigned seats. We don't group you up based on your likes and dislikes. We don't say, if you really like hymns, sit over here. If you think it's too loud, sit over here. If you think it's not loud enough, sit here in the middle. We, we don't do that. We don't check IDs at the door. Um, we don't arrange you in this room by your preferences. And we never will. Why? Because it's unhealthy. Because true fellowship, true community, means that there will undoubtedly be people in my life that might have a different interest than I do, or that might have a different strategy than I would. And if I'm only seeking out people just like me, then I'm going to miss something that God wants to teach me. One of our family mantras, we have two young kids, and one of our family mantras, we say it all the time. When something's not going right or when somebody doesn't get what they want, and I need to be reminded of this myself, so I'm not preaching at the choir, but we tell this to our kids all the time. You get what you get, and you don't throw a fit. This is what you get. You get what you get, and you don't throw a fit. And I don't want to minimize the power of fellowship down to a kid's phrase, but you have people that you choose to bring into your life. And then you get the opportunity slash stuck with people that God brings into your life. And see, therein lies the rub. Fellowship is not easy, and fellowship will never be easy. Fellowship is not easy, and fellowship will never be easy. Why? Because biblical fellowship will never be easy as biblical fellowship requires something of you. Fellowship will never be easy because it requires something of you. Why is it that the best things in life, the right things, actually require some work? And they require us to put forth some effort. The easy path says only be around people who are just like you. Hate everybody that's different. Make your neighbor your enemy and coast through life making everything about you. In fact, that's really easy. <laughs> that requires no growth. It requires no willpower. It requires no love. Joining a community group, however, requires something of you. It means you're going to have to show up somewhere. And it means that you can't just sit there and be unknown but you have to be known. Stepping up to serve in the life of the church, it requires something of you. Growing in interpersonal relationships, that requires something of you. Going out of your way to make sure that first-time guests feel welcomed and loved here at Rolling Hills Community Church, that requires something of you. It might mean we've been here four weeks and I thought that was my seat and somebody came in early and they're sitting in my seat. Growing in love means I'll just go to the other row and shake their hand and say, welcome, we're so glad that you are here. And without the gospel as the center of our life, we're going to miss it. So you have to make yourself known. You have to take steps of faith. And do you think this was easy for the Samaritan? It would have been a lot easier for the priest or the Levite to go out of their way. It was not easy for the Samaritan. So how was he able to do that? Well, it says in verse 33, a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. And don't you love that word pity? Because we hear the word pity and we think it means just feel sorry for someone. But that's not what pity means at all. He didn't just feel sorry for him because that word pity means that he was actually moved for compassion in his inward parts. He was moved with compassion for this man who was hurting. This isn't just a, oh, that's so sad, but rather I'm going to step up and do something about it. And one of the challenges that you and I have in creating biblical fellowship 
is that we have to press through differences. We have to press through things that are unknown. And remember the Titans, it was skin color and prejudices and hatred. But yet the team began working through those process of healing through those differences. And we're still going to struggle today if we don't keep God center and we keep God at the center of what we're doing and make fellowship important, that fellowship will always be challenging. In fact, I would venture to say that most of us would very easily bullet point out a bunch of differences between us and others and realize that that might be the reason that we don't grow in fellowship. But when's the last time you stop to reflect on this and you see this here on your notes? The enemy of fellowship is not our differences. The enemy of fellowship is the enemy. The enemy of fellowship in our life is not our differences. The enemy of fellowship is the enemy. You and I have a real adversary out there. His name is Satan, and what he wants to do in your life is he wants you to be afraid of everyone. He wants your life to be so full that you have no margin in your life that you don't actually have time for people. He wants you to be so closed-minded that you would think that you couldn't find relationships with people that weren't just like you. He wants your family tension and your schedule to be so strong that your relationships will struggle. So as we call a spade the spade this morning, the enemy is the enemy. The person next to you is not your enemy. The subpar employee at your work is not the enemy. The person who doesn't see the world like you do is not the enemy. The person in your family who drives you bonkers, I'm sure you don't have that, but they're not the enemy. The customer service rep on the other line of the phone who's not giving you what you need, he or she is not the enemy. The enemy is the enemy, and we cannot let him get a foothold in our midst. And if we allow him to get a stronghold in our life, then we will go by the way of the priest and the Levite in this story, and we will miss what it is that Jesus is wanting to show us. Because what did the Samaritan do in verse 34? He went to him and bandaged his wounds and poured on oil and wine, and then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. Don't you love that the Samaritan didn't just do the bare minimum, but rather exceeded what anyone would have expected? I mean, the priest and the Levite left him for dead. So let it be a sign for us today that loving only those who are easy to love is not a sign of spiritual maturity. <laughs> if you're wondering what is a sign of spiritual maturity, it is not just loving people who are easy to love. Anybody can do that. It requires nothing of me. On the contrary, though, loving those who might be a little more challenging to love and fostering the fellowship that God brings into my life, whether I would have chosen that or not, is actually very God-honoring. To only love people that I want to be around is, to some degree, kind of selfish. And it just makes life about me. It's saying, I want what I want when I want it, and I want to be around who I want to be when I want to be around them. But when you go back to the early church, that's not the model that they followed. They weren't grouped up into their likes and their dislikes, but rather their fellowship was strong. And they broke bread together. Don't you believe? These were humans. Don't you believe back in that group of 3,120, they did not all get along. There was some of that group that was like saying, enough of this issue. We used to be able to eat pork as a Gentile, and you're not eating pork. We miss it. So let's go hide and eat some bacon over here. I mean, there was, <laughs> there was going to be division. There was going to be strife. There was going to be obstacles that they would have to overcome. In fact, it only takes a few chapters. Keep going. From Acts chapter 2, it only takes to Acts chapter 6 to where they start going off the rails. And in Acts chapter 6, many amongst them are left without food. And they're left, and the widows are left out of the distribution of food. It only took four chapters for the tensions to become really, really strife. 
If you don't think the early church was riddled with some differences and trying to work through some of the differences, I implore you, don't read 1 Corinthians. Don't read 2 Corinthians because they are all about the struggles that the early church was going through. So see, the mark of a healthy church has never been that everybody's in uniformity on everything. We are in uniformity on the central teaching, which is God sent Jesus Christ to this earth as a Savior, the Savior, for the forgiveness of our sins, and he is the only way that we will be made right. Amen? He is the only way that we will find life and joy and peace. We will never be compromising on that truth. We will never be compromising on what's sin and what's not sin. But in the midst of the ministry that we seek to exist, we also don't desire to be offensive just for offensive sake because the early church was not marked by uniformity all the time and agreement on everything. You were free to have a like and a dislike. And I'm not operating under some ideal that that will be easy for us here. But it is worth it to bring our all into this place to ensure that the koinonia, the fellowship, driven by compassion, just like the Samaritan was moved, he pitied, he moved by compassion in his inward soul. My hope and my prayer is that that would exist in this place, that it would exist in this place today, and that a year from now, it would exist even stronger than it exists currently right now in this moment. And that happens as we grow in fellowship, and that happens as we seek to be there for one another. 1 John chapter 1, verse 6 and 7 says, If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. See, if you and I walk in the light of Jesus Christ, we have fellowship with one another. It is rooted in Jesus Christ. And what unifies us is far greater than anything that would ever divide us. What unifies us is great. See, what unified T.C. Williams High School was actually far greater than winning a championship. That was just gravy. (laughs) What unified them wasn't how many wins and losses they had. What unified them was their willingness to be the team and their willingness to be in that fellowship with one another. And here in our midst right now, there's a lot at stake based on how we grow in fellowship. And there's a lot at stake based on how we grow in our love for one another because what happens is you become changed in the process. You learn from people that you probably never expected to learn from. And there's a richness of community that you probably would have never anticipated because true biblical fellowship is rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ, just like Jesus modeled here for us in the parable of the Good Samaritan. And you realize when you engage in true biblical fellowship, that people are there for you when you need them. And you get to be there for other people when they need you. Your excess helps meet their needs. Their excess help meets your needs. But even more so, this is not only important for what happens here in this place, but even more so, if that was not enough, I want to close this morning with this. There is something even greater than we can see bringing us together for a purpose greater than we can even understand. That's why this matters. It matters for what happens in the here and now. It matters for what happens in our relationships with one another as we grow in each other's relationships with one another, looking at the people around you right now and realizing if that person around me is hurting, I shouldn't be moved to compassion to help them. If that person's in need, I should be moved to compassion. But in fact, beyond all of that, there's something greater than we can ever see, though. And it brings us together for a greater purpose than we can ever understand. And what is that? 
What is that thing that's even greater than we can see or understand right now? It's the fact that there are many people that live in Nolensville, Tennessee right now, Middle Tennessee, around the globe, that do not know Jesus Christ. And what happens in this place, what happens in the fellowship of this place, Rolling Hills Community Church, is actually a testimony to the world that does not know Jesus. Yet, it's a catalyst for change in the life of another person. In just the last seven days, uh, several stories have been shared with me. Just in the last seven days, someone was talking to me recently, and they said they came to Rolling Hills a few months ago, and they were at a very broken place. And they said, Rolling Hills has been a place of healing for me personally. It's been a place of healing for my family. And they said, a few weeks ago, you had us move throughout the room, and we were praying for chairs in this room. And they said, I got a visual that there was somebody who would come into this room someday that would be exactly where I was, and I started praying for God to radically change their life. And you know, it might be you. You might be the person that that person was praying for. And you might be sitting in a chair right now that was prayed over that in this place you would find peace and hope and life. In the last seven days, I had someone share with me that they had found community here in the life of the church. In fact, they joined a community group that they really weren't that interested in joining. (laughs) And they got to the group and they realized, nobody in this group really looks like me. Nobody in this group is really in the same season of life that I am in. But instead of opting out, they said, we're just going to trust God. And they began to say, God orchestrated the bringing of people around them at just the right time to bring exactly what they needed. And this man was telling me, please tell people to join a group and tell them that if they show up and it's not what they thought it was going to be, just stick it out. Because something happened in my life. In the last seven days, I heard a story of healing from a person here in our church who had the courage to share with another person what she was going through, to push through that uncomfortableness of trying to hold that facade that life is perfect and I have everything together. And she shared that with someone else. And just a few days later, God brought her healing in that area. See, that is why community and fellowship and being the hands and feet of Jesus Christ here in our midst is so important. It matters for us, but my friends, it also matters for those of us that are not here yet. And for those of you that are not there yet, John 13, 35 says, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you, say it with me, love one another. Did you know that the greatest testament to a hurting and a broken world is the love that we have for one another? It's the greatest testament to a world that's hurting is the love that's expressed through the power of Jesus Christ in this place this morning. And I pray that you'll live this out I pray that you'll get out of your comfort zone this week. I pray for you to be intentional this week in creating and fostering fellowship. I pray that this would be a place where the fellowship of believers is so strong that it would be contagious to our community and that the differences wouldn't divide us, that the different interests wouldn't divide us, but rather would make us stronger. I pray for life change, and I pray that that would happen in your life as a result of the people in this place, some of which that you may not even know yet. So may God start something today And may God fan into flame a fellowship, biblical fellowship, that is so rich in this place that it can truly only be described by him. Because what's going to happen is we will be changed. You can take that to the bank. But the people who are not here yet will also be changed as a result of the biblical fellowship that happens in this place. So this morning, let's pray that God would bring it. Let's pray that God would do something that can only be described by Him. Thank you for listening to the Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast. Share this episode with movie lovers, friends, and family in your life. Make sure you subscribe to be notified so you never miss a sermon. If you're interested in learning more about Rolling Hills, 
Download our Rolling Hills app, follow us on social media, or visit our website at rollinghills.church. The Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast is a part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network, available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in.